0: All right. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Really uh, looking forward to, to being here this this morning. Wanted to uh, honestly just dig into God's Word, and I, I couldn't wait for this. Um, it is uh, pretty uniformly acknowledged that we live in a very weird world at this exact moment. I mean like crazy, crazy weird. And I, I would be so interested to know uh, like, what your take on this weird world is. I, I'm sure that Dinner tables and morning coffees and walks with friends and Zoom calls with relatives all over the country or the world are full of uh, opinions and thoughts about how the world is at this exact moment, how it should be, uh, where things are going, and it would just be, honestly, it would be fascinating to hear those conversations. That would be a good watch, I imagine. Um, Just thinking about this weird world, we set out for 2020. This was uh, from over, I guess, now about a year ago. Uh, we started praying through what God had for us for 2020. We knew that it was going to be an election year. Obviously, we didn't know the rest of the stuff that's gone on in 2020. But uh, we started processing through with the Lord, what is it that um, that you want to say? How do you want to speak to us? How can we grow as a people in our discipleship to you, Jesus? What do you want to shape in us? And this concept of being exiles really emerged. We started to process through what it means to be exiles uh, being from somewhere else, but living in a foreign land. That language is used uh, to talk about God's people often. So we looked at Daniel. We went through the book of Daniel specifically to try and understand literal exiles, Israel taken out of their land and placed into Babylon. And what did it look like for a man specifically, Daniel, to live a godly and faithful life in the midst of a godless land? What Did that look like lived out, and how do we actually process through that? Then we took some time to go through Proverbs, and there's nothing in Proverbs specifically about exile, but there is this sense of wisdom that is counter the way of the world. The way of Jesus is not the same as the way of the world. You have wisdom and you have folly, and there's a choice to live. And when we live the wisdom of God, the way of Jesus. It is going to look very different than the world around us. It's actually going to have an impact on even how the world perceives and understands God. And so we wanted to look at, at our lives through the lens of wisdom in contrast to the world around us. And, and next up is 1 Peter. And we're going to dive into this book uh, next week, starting next week, this book of 1 Peter that just, honestly, it takes this idea of being in exile and it puts it on every follower of Jesus calls us sojourners, right? You think of this idea of a, a sojourner, as somebody that's on a, on a journey, that's in transit. We're, we're going somewhere. We actually don't have a true home here. We're nomadic. The homes that we have here, even the bodies, these are tabernacles, they're tents. They're not, they're not permanent here, but they have their home elsewhere. And so there's a, a different sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world around us, And Peter's going to challenge us to live godly lives full of the fear of God. He's going to challenge us to be sober-minded and ready to live faithfully in the midst of suffering, persecution, and difficulty. He wants us to participate in the world around us, but he wants to do it as God's people. So as we prepare to start our series in 1 Peter... I wanted to take a brief moment to look at Jesus's invitation in John 17 to be a unified people. I mentioned that the world is weird, and one of maybe the challenges that we're experiencing is just the the feeling that everybody has a different opinion about everything. That honestly, it's hard to even nail down what proper thinking should be, or what does it look like to make wise decisions, and, and our brains are getting a little bit scrambled. Do you feel the scramble brain? I feel the scramble brain. I don't know if you feel the scramble brain. Maybe you're doing just fine and you know exactly what to do every day and exactly how to think in every moment and you're just doing just fine. The Lord says not to envy, but I am a little bit envious of that particular thing. So I wanna talk through what does it look like for us to be unified around the person of Jesus? Now, specifically, we're gonna ask the question, what does it look like to be unified when there are vast differences in opinion, approach, conviction, And experience in the body of Christ? That is a particularly challenging question, but we know that Jesus has the power to unify. Even in his disciples, he brings on Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, right? This pro Roman, uh, he's a Jew, but he's used the Roman government to make money by stealing from his own people, and in doing that, he's aligned himself with these, these Roman people. And then you have Simon the Zealot who is violently opposed to Roman occupation. The zealots made a specific mission out of overthrowing the Roman government using force. And so here you have these two people brought together under the name of Jesus. Again, wildly different. As opposed as you can be politically, they are brought together under the name of Jesus. You go to Acts chapter 13. By the way, I don't think this is a mistake at all, but if you read Acts 13, the the gathering of prophets and teachers as far as we can tell, there are uh, three, maybe four different racial profiles brought together in this gathering of prophets and teachers that ultimately commission Paul and Barnabas into their first missionary journey. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but to, to see it uh, a faith come out of Israel that was largely a Jewish expression. Maybe there were proselytes that were Gentiles, but they had to jump through some different hoops, some very painful hoops to become uh, these these Jewish God-fearers. And here we have this, this new faith emerging in Jesus, the fulfillment of what it meant to be a Jew, and it's expressed in all people, all nations, And it's represented in the very early stages of the church. So here you have Jesus, again, bringing together this this racial diversity. And that's such an important storyline of the New Testament. So critical and so powerful. And you watch it come together in the name of Jesus to ultimately carry out the work that he has for us to do. And then you go in and you read the book of Romans, read the book of 1 Corinthians, read the book of Galatians. And and what you get from these, these letters from Paul is typically a church that has differing convictions about how to live out the Christian life. So Paul writes that to Rome. Read Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and you see that this church is divided over how to live as a follower of Jesus. Read Galatians. Huge differences in how to live as a follower of Jesus. We just went through 1 Corinthians, and you see it there as well big differences in what they believe should happen in the gathering, what they believe should happen out there in the world, how they should live their lives. And in each of these settings, what we see is a call to run at the same Jesus. Yes, there are different convictions, and there are ways to live with each other, and there's, there's kind of strategies for how to be unified, but ultimately unity is going to come from running at the same Jesus. So it's helpful to know one thing before we get into John 17, and that's that unity is not the objective in and of itself. And we, we do have to be a little bit careful about that. Like if unity is the objective, then oftentimes we will be forced to compromise other things in order to attain unity. Unity is not the objective. Jesus is the objective, and unity is the byproduct of everybody running at the same Jesus. Now, there will be many calls in the scriptures to unity because we want that as an output of our faith. And Paul and Peter will actively apply if we're running at Jesus. We need to be unified, and there are ways to implement that. But the goal, again, for us as followers of Jesus is to be followers of Jesus, to run at him. So we're going to take a look. John 17 is going to be our main text today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to look at the entire chapter. And uh, in doing this, we're going to highlight a few key things. So starting with verses 1 through 5, and then we'll talk about that, and then we'll go into 6 through 26, just a short little section uh, on Jesus' prayer. All right, so let's read this. John 17. This is known as the High Priestly Prayer. You might have that heading in your Bible, and it's been named that, not by Jesus, but because Jesus is functioning in a priestly manner. He has the Father, and he has his people, and he's interceding on their behalf. He's acting as a priest in this particular moment. So it's called the High Priestly Prayer. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Okay, Jesus starts with the ultimate goal of his presence on earth, and that is the glory of God and the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that we would know God. Remember Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Jesus is saying, I'm here to make you known, and I'm here to demonstrate that I am the Son of God. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the anointed one, sent by God. This picture is so critical that you see a, a, a key document in church history called the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It starts with this phrase, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you take John 17 and you have this picture of like our purpose, our existence is to make much of Jesus, to make much of the Father that the world would know him is the entire reason that you and I are here today. That's why we exist. So everything about who we are runs through this filter of how do I make much of Jesus? How do I make Yahweh known in this world? That's, that's our new worldview. It's our new filter. It's our new character dynamic as people. Jesus' objective was to glorify God. Our objective is to glorify God. Now Jesus goes into how Glory happens. That's the rest of John 17. So back to your Bibles. Let's read verses 6 through 26. There's a lot of I's and we's and them's and they's. Just try and follow. It's good. It says this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So I just want you, just a quick pause. Jesus is praying for you and me that everybody that believes through the word of these disciples, Jesus is praying for, and that's us. If we've given our lives to Jesus right here, right now, he's praying for us. This is his prayer for us, that they may be one, verse 22, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, This is an incredible text. Again, it's a lot of I's and we's and they's and them's, but here's the basic gist of it. Jesus is praying to the Father, and his prayer first is for the disciples that he's been training up and preparing to send out. He's looking at them and he's saying, "'Lord, I want them to be unified as we are unified.'" He believes that there's this potential for epic Trinity-level unity to happen in the disciples, but then he also prays for the next generation And I say generation, meaning all who would believe through the word of the disciples, for you and I have believed through the word that was preached to them and then they preached to the world. They were obedient to the call to go and make disciples and we are those disciples if we believe in Jesus. And so he prays for us as well, that we would be perfectly one as Jesus and the Father are one. Ultimately, Jesus prays for unity So that the world will know that Jesus was sent by the Father. See, that picture of unity is what's going to testify to the veracity or the trueness of Jesus being the Messiah. Because Jesus being the Messiah is going to unite a world that does not want to be united. The reality of the world is that it will run a bazillion different directions, and that is an actual word, a bazillion different directions. Uh, We're going through the Bible project in family worship and we went through Judges and there's this picture in Judges of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes and that's the nature of the world that we live in is everybody is running a different direction but Jesus has the power to bring together what the world is trying to take in many different directions. So let's talk about how that takes place. There are a few key things that we want to look at, three in particular. The first one, Is that we will find unity if we are together engaged in spiritual warfare. Okay, so I want you to look at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, so Jesus specifically knows that he's not wanting to escape us out of the world, that's not the the objective of his salvation. You think of salvation and sometimes you think of this idea of rescue or being taken out of, sometimes even drowning in a pool and and being rescued out of that pool or out of the ocean is the picture given to us of salvation. It's a beautiful picture, but it's dealing with our sin and the consequences of that sin, not escaping from the world that we're in. Jesus's goal is not that we would escape the world that we're in, but that we would be in here and that the Father would keep us from the evil one, meaning... There is a battle for you and for me. We've been left here with a purpose. And Jesus' prayer is, Father, keep them from the evil one. Don't let him, as Peter will write, as he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, don't let him devour them. So put them on the path that they need to be on, but protect them from the enemy. Peter's going to talk quite a bit about spiritual warfare, what it means to be sober-minded, what it means to be alert, looking for the work of the enemy and being able to counter it with righteous living. There's a, a conversation about that in the book of 1 Peter, but that's part of what unifies us is that we have a common enemy. And here's something that is of critical importance. Our enemy is not other human beings. Even other human beings that do wicked and evil things, they're not our enemy. They might be categorized as our enemy, but our job is to love them. Our job is to love them into the kingdom of God. The one true enemy that the Bible describes for us is Satan himself. And that picture of him being our enemy is one of the things that brings us together, is that this battle is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of this dark world. That's where our battle lies. So if our battle is getting caught up in the things of this world or the people of this world, we've we've already started to miss the point. You can see how quickly our unity dissipates when that's the case. But when we are battling the enemy, the evil one, there's something in that that brings us together. All right, second thing that Jesus gives us is that we together are being refined by the scriptures. Look at verse 17. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so the word sanctify comes from the Latin word sanctus, which just means uh, holy. So you could put in holy there, set apart, consecrate, make holy, make right, make pure. All of that is, is the picture. Sanctify them in the truth means, Father, make them holy in the truth. What this means is that the primary source of our spiritual input and our wisdom input is God's Word, the Scriptures. Okay, Paul will tell Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the, it's the very breath of God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that every person of God would be equipped or complete. And that picture is so important for us to understand that God's Word is of critical importance for us in how we go about growing and being sanctified or made like Jesus. Now, one of the big challenges that exists right now is to hear God through all the noise. It's almost impossible for our brains and our hearts to settle because of the swirling voices that are constantly pulling at our emotions or our reason or our convictions and we're being blown about by every wind. So our call is to the word of God. To let this be the thing that is refining and guiding us. I was talking with Ahmad about this in the office this week and he was just saying like it's pretty important that that what you say once a week, Matt, is not the extent of our spiritual input. Like we need the scriptures We don't just need one message. We need God's word in our lives every single day. And my hope, honestly, the thing that would make the biggest difference is if we all just take Psalm 1 extremely serious, that we delight in God's word, that we meditate on it day and night. That is where we're gonna find the flourishing life. That is where we're gonna find the sanctification, this refining. So it's really important to look to God's word. So if we have a common enemy and we have a common refining fire, common scripture that is, that is doing the work of refining us, we're on the way towards unity. Now, you know and I know that there are different interpretations and people will read this differently. It's not a silver bullet, but it is absolutely a part of how we would be refined and how we would find unity is when we look to this and not the many voices in the many places that will pull at our our thoughts, our convictions, our emotions. The third thing is that we are sent on a common mission, Jesus' mission, verse 18. As you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. As you have sent me, so I have sent them. So Jesus, in multiple places actually, here and then again in John 20, 21, he'll equate the sending or the commissioning of his disciples and of the generations of disciples, the later disciples, that's you and me, he will equate the commissioning of us into the world as what the Father did to him. Jesus was sent by the Father, obeyed him he came here with the explicit purpose of giving glory to the father and being glorified by the father and passing on his name to us so that we could go into all nations teach them to obey all that he's commanded and baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit He's commissioned us to go out into the world so that we could bring the ministry and the message of reconciliation into this world so that they might know God and they might experience his saving grace and his saving power. So you can start to see again, Jesus is our objective and he's teaching us how we can be unified when our enemy is the evil one and we are together in a spiritual battle against not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of this dark world. When the scriptures are refining us, when they're actually stirring us to live righteously and and shaping the decision-making that we do, like Proverbs was doing for us, or the, the way that we would build our character and establish our families, that the scriptures are refining us and that we're sent on a common mission. Why am I here? I'm here to carry the name of Jesus into a hurting and broken world so that they might experience his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his goodness. Because God desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. So we have this picture of of how unity is going to take shape when we're all running after Jesus. It starts to shape this this commonness in us. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with John 17? John 17. Jesus's prayer ultimately is that the life of a believer would be a catalytic life. It would be a spark that inspires and stirs and motivates people in the world to know Jesus is the Messiah and ultimately to follow him and give their lives completely in submission to Yahweh. But our lives as those who have said yes are to be catalytic That we're to live in such a way that people would look at us and they would see Jesus, that they would see the Father. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 5 17. That's the picture that we're given of what it looks like to be here and now. So, how do we do that? A very famous follower of Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said that the first call of every Christian is to abandon the attachments of this world. He was commenting on Matthew 16, 24 and 25, that says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Bonhoeffer follows that up by saying, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Come and die. I bring these up because the invitation of Jesus is to come into a life where we make much of Jesus. And what that means is that we ourselves are dying. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I died with Jesus and I no longer live. But the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My life is not my own anymore. So part of how we go about the business of being followers of Jesus and how we will have any hope of finding unity in this world is when we die and Jesus fills our lives. We take up our cross daily. Jesus bids bids us come and die. When we make other things the main thing, we minimize our opportunity for unity. When we seek things other than Jesus in this life, we're taking away the ability of the people of God to be unified because Jesus is the only thing that we can run after that will bring us all together. A couple of things that are really important about this. First is that unity is not necessarily sameness. As we look at Jesus praying for unity, it's not not that he would make everybody the same person, but rather making many people, different people, to follow the same Christ, to carry his name and his way. And a couple of things about this. I mean, Jesus will say, sorry, I didn't give all these scriptures to Ryan, but he'll say in Galatians 3.28, He talks about how there's neither male nor female or Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. He talks about these different groups or identifiers, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's a beautiful picture of that, that a part of our identity has melted away and has become this one in Jesus. And then you also see this incredible reality throughout the scriptures that Simon is called Simon the Zealot to identify the way that he lived his life and what's been brought together in Jesus, that Matthew is called a tax collector. That we see these different monikers of people in the scriptures, identifiers, that that speak to the differences that have been brought together in the name of Jesus. And we look at at Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12, and it talks about varying gifts. Jesus gave to each according to the measure of his gift. And there's this, this difference that is essential because no one person perfectly represents Jesus Christ. We need a body full of many members and different parts to make up what will ultimately look like Jesus. We are not built to be the same person. We're built to be different, but there is a sameness that we're seeking after. I hope you can see the nuance that's in the scriptures there. It's not that all that you are is being stripped away so that Jesus ends up in your place. But it's that he takes you. He takes your personality. He takes your gifting. And he is refining you. And he's putting Jesus as the central figure. And you are running to him. And so we are being unified. But he's not taking away who you are. A great example of this, sorry, I'll get back to notes in just a second, but a great example of this is you look at the writing of Paul, the writing of Peter, the writing of Hebrews, the writing of James, the writing of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, the book of John, and the writing of Luke. They have different Greek skills. Their ability to write in Greek is different. Luke, as a physician, is the most technical, it's the most orderly, my wife would love it the most, it's structured, it's clear, it follows all the Greek rules. And then you have Paul who writes in run-on sentences, run-on sentences after 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 run Okay, I'll stop. But you can see just the personalities and even the grammar of these individuals are brought together in Jesus. They're not made to be the same person. But we are unified in Jesus. And that happens, as the author of Hebrews writes, when we run to Jesus. This is Hebrews 12:1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, you wanna see some differences, read through Hebrews chapter 11, different people, different stories, different places, different times, different convictions. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so we run with our different personalities, with our different gifting, even our varying convictions, even our varying locations. The cultures that we live in are different, but we run at the same Jesus. And in doing that, we, we find this incredible byproduct of unity in the body of Christ. I know it's cheating, but I'm going to take you to 1 Peter. We'll get there eventually, uh, this particular passage. But go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 8. Peter's kind of summarizing quite a bit of what he said up to this point and what it means to, to be the, the family of God. And so he says, finally, in chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So Peter's call, its he's kind of summarizing this, uh, this gospel that he's preached, and then the impact that it has on our varying relationships, and he's, he's calling on all of us to have unity of mind. And I, I really struggled with that because I was trying to think, like, how do we do that? What does that look like? So looking up unity of mind and just trying to understand it, it has to do, again, with that that sameness of goal and objective that we're running at Jesus. It's not that we all think the same way all the time. It's not. So what this does is this actually gives us the basis to be able to have hard conversations. That we're running at the same Jesus but I see things from a more Republican point of view or conservative point of view that we're running at the same Jesus, but I see things from a more liberal or Democrat point of view, but we're running at the same Jesus. We can have these hard conversations because Jesus wins and we're running at him. So even if there's difference in our approach or what we think politically, we can find unity because we're running at Jesus together. We can be the body of Christ because we're running at Jesus together. This is why we would talk about there's no room for racism or favoritism or uh, haughty eyes, socioeconomic differences in the body of Christ. Because in any of those contexts, we have to understand that Jesus brings us to the same place of the cross and we're all running at him together. And there's there's no human being that exists in a better than category, a more important than category. But there are differences how do we, in those differences, find the commonality of Jesus and run together at Jesus? We have to be able to have these hard conversations and work to find Jesus as the thing that we are running to. The picture of the New Testament is that it is refining us. It's taking God's word, and it's shaping a different way in us. It's bringing us to a place of common focus, common destination. So what can we do today? If we want to be a a unified people, what can we do today? First thing is today you can come and die. You can take up your cross daily. You can deny yourself and you can follow Jesus. This is not about me, but it is about me making much of Jesus want to lift him up. Step one. Second thing we can do is those three elements of what are going to unify us, our common enemy. We're not enemies with any single person on this planet. We are enemies of the evil one. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this dark world. So we engage in a spiritual warfare. We use the scriptures to refine us, These are the things that drive us to uh, be and look more like Jesus is that we see the word of God shaping us and challenging us and stirring us. And then we are sent on a common mission. We go to this broken world as exiles. This is not our home. But we're here on a mission to help people find their way back to God to know his goodness and his grace. If we can start with Jesus and we can live those three realities, we can find togetherness, even if we think differently, even if we come from different backgrounds, even if we have different pathways in life, different advantages, even if we have different things to us, we can come together because we're running after the same Jesus and we are fighting the same battles refined by the same scriptures and on the same mission, and we will be miles, miles ahead. So we want to seek unity. As we go into 1 Peter, we're going to talk about what it means to be exiles, and he's writing to Christians all over the known world at that time, and we're going to look at what does it mean for us to be unified in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We need more of you in this world and more of you in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would emerge out of today as so preeminent in our thinking, in our lives. First, foremost, priority one, most important thing about who I am is that I am yours, Jesus. I know there are many conversations to have, but we ask that you would guide us through them and that Jesus, at every step of the way, you would be reminding us of what it means to be your people. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray, amen.